0: It's no small thing to make church happen in a blizzard. So thank you to all of you who are here this morning, pulling together to make this possible. From the welcome team, to the worship team, to tech team, kids ministry folks. Thank you for serving. We want to make sure that everybody felt the freedom to stay at home today. Uh, So that means that there are people covering multiple roles simultaneously this morning. Uh, there's some new people doing jobs they've never done this morning. Uh, we see you. Thank you. And I especially want to recognize Catherine Jankis over here because she's, yeah, <clears throat> she's overseeing all of our tech like she does on a normal week. Plus, this week happened to be her week leading worship, leading the band up front in our rotation. So she's wearing a lot of hats right now while being a bit short staffed. So thank you, Catherine, for leading us in worship good to be with you all. Let me pray for us. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. In a book called No One Sees God, Michael Novak makes this observation. He says, the line of belief and unbelief is not drawn between one person and another normally, but rather down the inner souls of all of us. The line of belief and unbelief is not drawn between one person and another normally, but rather down the inner souls of all of us. In other words, doubters tend to think of the believers as being over here on this side of the line, so to speak, uh, smugly confident with their noses up in the air, right? While believers tend to picture doubters as being on this other side of the line with maybe no sense of meaning in their lives whatsoever. But what if there's a sense at least in which we aren't actually on opposite sides of that line? Rather, what if there's a sense in which that line actually cuts through each of us with each of us carrying a mix of believing and not believing? That's what Novak finds to be the case anyway. And why? He goes on to explain. He says, because we all have the same contradictory information to work with. Because we all have the same contradictory information to work with. What's the contradictory information that we all have to work with? Well, for some of you, the answer to that question is all too fresh right now, right? God says he has a plan for my life, but I'm out of work and the savings are running low. God says he works all things for my good, but I don't understand how it's good that I'm still single. God says he loves me, but he took my loved one too soon. Contradictory information. 4,000 years ago, Abraham, at this point in the story, still named Abram, had contradictory information To work with. He's been waiting on God to make good on his promises, and after seeing very little progress toward those promises being fulfilled over time, Abram just can't understand how those promises could possibly come true. So, he takes his mix of belief and doubt and brings it all to God. Would you turn with me to Genesis 15? Genesis 15, your Bible Bible app, you want to be with us and follow along. We're spending these early months of 2021 walking through Abraham's story Let's recap where we've been. It started with Genesis 12, a few weeks back, when God made three basic promises to a 75-year-old childless Abram. Three promises that will be reiterated throughout Genesis. He says that he will give Abram descendants, he'll give Abram land, and that all nations will be blessed through Abram. Those are the three parts of the promise. Descendants, land, all nations will be blessed through you. Now, some time has passed since Genesis 12, Don't know exactly how long, maybe five years or so. So Abram's about 80 at this point. But Abram doesn't feel that he's any closer to any of these things coming true. But in the last chapter, chapter 14, where we were last week, we saw that Abram just won a major military victory. And because he still believes God and still believes God's promises, he turned down an offer, remember that, of the spoils of war. And God sees that. So now, in chapter 15, God is going to reaffirm two of the promises that he made back in chapter 12. As I read chapter 15 right now, I want us to notice that there are two major sections of this text that mirror each other. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, You don't have to write that down or anything, but just so you can kind of see visually, the two parts of the passage mirror each other. The same thing happens in each one. The first part of each passage, uh, God speaks. Uh, In the second part, there's a question from Abraham, then a sign from God, then a comment from the narrator. The first section is about God's promise of descendants. Second section is about God's promise of land. Track that with me, generally speaking, as I read now Genesis chapter 15. After these things, after that battle, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now the second section. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And the sun had gone down, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot, and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Because the text is structured this way with these two parts that mirror each other, it seems that the author is telling us one story in our two mirrored sections. So as such, we're going to structure our exploration together today in that same way with statements from God, followed by the questions from Abram, then the signs from God, then the comments from the narrator. Then we'll finish up our time in the Word by looking at how this particular story from Genesis fits, ties into the big story of everything. A lot of ground to cover. We won't be able to hit everything in this passage, unfortunately. But first, let's take a look at uh, when God speaks in the first verse of each section, verse 1 and verse 7. How many of us have said to ourselves at some point, it's hard not to doubt when God never speaks to me like he spoke to these people in the Bible, right? Like if God would show up and speak to me like he spoke to them, I'd believe too. But would we? Right? I mean, here's Abraham, maybe the person in the Bible most praised for his faith. Yet, even when he gets a vision from God, even when he hears the Lord's audible voice, which most of us have not heard, yet he's still got nagging doubts. So, if the line between faith and doubt runs right through the heart of even the so-called father of faith, Abraham, even after hearing God's audible, audible voice, are you and I justified in thinking that we're just one mystical encounter away, uh, with God away from all of our doubts being erased? Probably not. Let's look again at those reassuring words that God speaks to Abram. So, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Remember, Abram just won a military victory. Lord tells Abram, I'm your shield, perhaps because Abram fears retaliation from the kings. He's just defeated. And remember how Abram just turned down the reward for winning the battle? So it's not a coincidence that God responds here by saying, oh, your, your reward shall be very great. In short, God's saying in verse 1, don't worry about the threat of retaliation. I'm your shield. I'm your protection. And you won't regret turning down that reward from the king of Sodom. I'll give you a reward greater than the king of Sodom could ever give you. That's how God opens the first of our two sections. Now scan down to how God opens the second section of our text, verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So God reiterates the promise of land that he first made back in chapter 12. Two sets of reassuring words, right? From God to Abram. Crazy intimate experience with God to get to hear his voice like this, complete with a vision. Audible voice. So maybe we'd expect Abram to respond, Thank you, Lord. All my doubts have been erased. Right? But now we're about to see that Abram can't shake the fact that he can't figure out a way in his head that the particulars of God's promises about descendants and land could possibly come true. The doubts hang on. Are you a person with doubts? I never thought of myself as a person with doubts. Though I can intellectually understand others' doubts about the existence of God or the divinity of Jesus or the virgin birth, I can't actually remember a time when I seriously doubted, wrestled in my heart with doubt about any of those things, right? So, so in the past, I've been like, doubt? That's eh, not really me. But then I think about the times when my life hasn't followed my script, When I found a pink slip in my mailbox at work, when marriage turned out not to be what the movies said it was going to be, when I gave something up for God but didn't see instant blessings flowing my way like I expected. There's a consistent theme in my responses to each of those situations, I regret to say. I got super anxious. Went in the tank, I was gripped with fear, constant questioning why, fundamentally, It's because I was doubting God's promises, specifically His promises that He's going to take care of me and work things out for my good. I didn't really believe that or else I wouldn't have been freaking out. In the end then, I've come to see that I'm a doubter like anybody else. And I've gotten to know myself well enough now that I can say with confidence that even if God showed up in a vision to speak to me in an audible voice, it wouldn't alleviate all my concern that he might not really follow through on his promises. What about you? Let's look at how Abram articulates his doubts here in our uh, second section of the text. Abram expresses concern about God's commitment to follow through on two of the promises given back in chapter 12. And as he does so, he articulates two subtly different kinds of doubt that we sometimes carry, doubting God and doubting self. First, when God says, I'm your shield, your reward will be very great, Abram expresses doubt about well, whether God will in fact provide him with the offspring he promised. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. That's one of his servants. Behold, you give me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. In other words, Abram says, God, you're talking about this great reward you're going to give me, but the reward you're supposed to be giving me is children, or at least a child who would become a great nation. That's what you said you'd do, and now I'm at the end of my journey. I'm 80 years old. No kids. What gives? And do you notice what Abram has done in the maybe five years or so since God first gave that promise in chapter 12? We learn here that Abram has taken on an heir or he at least expresses an intention to soon officially take on an heir, he's going to name one of his servants as the heir to his estate. Apparently, things have gotten tense enough with his nephew Lot that Lot's not going to be the heir anymore. And and the more time goes by with no sign of the promised baby, Abram feels an increasing need to get his future secured to name an heir who will take care of him in his older years. So he's almost threatening God here, if we could say it that way. Like, since you're not coming through God, I'm going to sign it all over to Eliezer. This is the first type of doubt, doubt in God's commitment to follow through on his promises. But there's a second kind of doubt. We see it here after God reiterates the land promise in verse 7. Again, Abram responds with a doubting complaint, like he does back in verse 2. But this doubt is phrased a little differently. Compare verse 2 to verse uh, 8. Remember, descendants was the first promise, land is the second promise. The first time is, how will you make good on this promise of descendants? But the second time isn't, how will you make good on this land promise? Rather, it's, how will I know that you'll make good on this promise of land? See that in verse 8? How am I to know that I shall possess it? See, that's just a tick different. How many of us have had plenty of faith in what God can do, but struggled to believe that we could believe it? Struggled to believe that we could be faithful enough to be worthy recipients of his blessing, right? The first kind of doubt was doubt in God. The second kind of doubt is doubt in ourselves. And Abram demonstrates both. Now, look, we don't want to be too hard on Abram, right? Right? After all, verse 6 is going to tell us that in all this, he's exercising faith, faith that God will credit to him as righteousness, and we'll come back to that. But for now, it's important that we note, despite real doubts that Abram does still carry, this whole doubt-ridden conversation with God is fundamentally, on one level, an act of faith, right? This is a guy who's risked it all for God, even in the last two chapters. And even now, as he's complaining to God, there's some faith even in his very complaints. Here's what I mean. Think about the person who takes to social media to complain about potholes on their street. That person doesn't believe, they don't have faith, that city council would be responsive to a direct request. They've given up on city council, so they're taking it to the masses, right? Right? Conversely, the person who writes a letter to city council complaining about the potholes on their street, does the city council even handle potholes as I'm saying this? I'm like, that's, not, that's probably not right. Um, but has some level of faith in city council as they're writing that letter, right? Some hope, they have some hope that their, their complaint might result in a resolution to their problem. So similarly, it's no small thing that Abram is willing to take his doubts to God, The very act of taking those doubts to God is itself an act of faith. And when you and I take our doubts to God instead of withdrawing or giving up on God, we are exercising faith of our own. Listen, whether it's doubt, the first kind of doubt, in God's commitment to follow through on His promises, or the second kind of doubt, doubts in our own fitness to be recipients of His promises, most of us have struggled with at least one of those kinds of doubt at some point along the way. But I wonder how many of us feel freedom to name that doubt that we experience. After all, when it comes to doubt, we tend to gravitate toward one of two unhealthy poles, right? Some of us were raised in a home or church tradition in which there was no place for doubt. Doubt was evil and it was clear to us the message came through that doubt must not be named. On the other side, some of us are raised in a home or in a church tradition in which you're only considered intellectually competent or emotionally healthy if you're living in a state of constant doubt, if you're never certain about anything. This is the sort of environment where certainty is the cardinal sin, where it's sophisticated to always talk about mystery and never firmly land anywhere in faith. The Bible resists both of those poles. We see in this story and throughout the pages of Scripture that although the Bible never encourages doubt, doubters are always welcome to bring their doubts to God. And that's exactly what Abram does. He doesn't want to remain in his doubt forever. It's not celebrated here. Yet, he's not pressured to squash his doubts or sweep them under the rug. He feels freedom here to bring his doubts to God. So how does God respond? Let's look at that here. God responds by giving a sign. Think about how we might have expected God to respond though, right? The first time Abram expresses doubt here in chapter 15, after all that Abram's gone through, some of us might have expected God to say, how dare you question me? I said I was going to do it, didn't I? Instead, God patiently reiterates the offspring promise and gives Abram a sign To go with it, the stars in the sky is a visual depiction of Abram's descendants, verses four and five. But then the second time Abram expresses doubt right after being given that sign, verse eight, I don't know. To me, this just seems hurtful now, right? Like here's God saying, I brought you out to fulfill my promise of giving you this land. And Abram's like, how do I actually know you'll give it to me? I was thinking about this way. My parents came to visit a few weeks ago, uh imagine if my mom had asked my wife sarah hey can i borrow your blow dryer i'll give it right back and what if sarah had responded how do i know you'll give it back that'd just be hurtful right my mom would rightfully might rightly say what have i done to make you think i'm the sort of person who might not make good on my promise to give you back your blow dryer We might have expected god to respond the same way here to abram after all they've been through together abram what have i done to make you think that i'm the sort of god who might not make good on my promise to give you the land that i've now repeatedly told you that i will give to you but god doesn't respond like a hurt sinful human might what does he do he patiently gives a sign he doesn't need to give abram a sign But his heart is so filled with patience toward Abram that he gives Abram what Abram asks for, even though Abram shouldn't have needed it. So let's look at this sign because it's one of the most astounding, profound passages in all of Scripture. Verses 9 through 17. I'm going to start with 9 and 10 here. The Lord God, how am I I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Notice something there. God tells Abram to get all the animals. And even though God doesn't tell him what to do with the animals, Abram knows exactly what to do. Why? Because this was actually an established practice in the ancient Near East to make a covenant or to translate literally to cut a covenant. A covenant, it's a solemn commitment between two parties in which one or both parties guarantee promises or obligations to one another. We do this with contracts today with any number of people who do work on our homes or here in the church, We uh, make promises to each, which one another that carry financial penalties if one or the other of us don't follow through on our terms in the deal. But when you would cut a covenant in the ancient Near East, it wasn't something on paper. It was, there was often quite literally cutting involved in cutting a covenant. We see another example of a ceremony like this in Jeremiah 34, if you want to make a note of that, and you can look at that later. Here's how it would work. The lesser party, you know, this is, a, this is always done in an arrangement that's people of not equal power, right? So the lesser of the two parties would, uh, the vassal, so to speak, would bring the animals and cut them in half, letting their blood run into a little valley in between the pieces, then the greater party would set the terms because the greater party has the leverage in the relationship and act first by walking through the blood between the pieces barefoot as if to say, if I don't keep my end of this covenant, you can do to me what was done to these animals. Finally, the lesser party would walk through the blood barefoot as if to say, well, if I don't keep my end of this covenant, you can do to me what was done To these animals. In that light, let's pick up at verse twelve to see the terms of the covenant that God sets. Verse twelve, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for four hundred years. Maybe that's a reason for the darkness surrounding this passage. But I'll bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you should go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they should come back here to this land in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the terms are set. Those are the terms. What do we expect to happen Next knowing what we know from many, many sources in the ancient Near East about these covenant cutting ceremonies. What do we expect to happen next? The walkthrough, right? Any reader uh, of this original would, would expect to see the two parties walk through the pieces to confirm the covenant, although sometimes actually the greater party would use their leverage uh, to skip out on walking through so as not to demean themselves in that way. They would just make the lesser party walk through. What about this covenant ceremony? Is the greater party going to demean himself to walk between the pieces verse 17 when the sun had gone down and it was dark behold a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces by means of this supernatural sign god himself responds to abram's inquiry remember what this is a response to abram saying how will i know that you'll give me this land god responds by passing through these cut-up animals. And you're like, wait, what does, that, what does that mean? Any original reader of this text would know exactly what it meant. It meant that God was invoking a curse on himself if he didn't follow through on his end of the deal. May this be done to me, what was done to these animals, if I don't make good on my promise, God is saying. Would you say, that's ridiculous. God can't die. And That's right. But just as preposterous as it is, the idea that God would die is the idea that God would lie. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning. But if God has made a promise, it's as certain that He will make good on His promise as as it is that He lives. Let's zoom out again, though, because we we passed over it too quickly on how crazy it is that God even demeans Himself in the first place to go through with this ritual. The incredible patience and tender care he shows for Abram here, even in the midst of Abram's doubts. Is that consistent with your idea of God? How do you picture God? Ready to snap at you for your doubts? Rebuking you for them? What if God has always known that your faith would always be mixed with some unbelief? What if God has always been ready to receive you with open arms, questions and all? What if it's always been a delight for him when you take your doubts to him instead of pulling away from him? What if when you take your doubts to him, he sees it as a chance to show off? Now we've seen God speak. We've seen Abram respond with a mix of faith and doubt. And God graciously respond with reaffirming signs. Finally... We get commentary from the narrator, which is rare in Genesis. Let's see how the narrator summarizes the two sections, the offspring section and the land section of our text. Look at verse 6. This is the narrator summarizing the first five verses. And he believed the Lord. Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. From the beginning, we humans should have been righteous. Instead, not one of us has been righteous. So, God, in His mercy, has decided to credit faith as righteousness. In other words, even though we don't uphold our end of the deal, which was walk before me and be blameless, we're going to see in a couple chapters, if we'll just believe that God will uphold His end of the deal, God will count it as though we upheld our end of the deal. Isn't that crazy? Dr. Lau will spend a whole week just on this verse, fifteen six, later in the series, looking at all the times the New Testament quotes it. But for now, verse 6 gives us occasion to ask, are we trusting in ourselves or are we trusting in God to bring us through? You say what we want about Abram's doubts, but at least momentarily here, he has come to the end of trusting in himself to pull this off. He has acknowledged that he's dependent on God and he's taking God at his word. And God in his grace credits that, as righteousness, even though Abram's righteousness itself was far from perfect. Then look at the other summary from the narrator, verses 18 to 21. Remember where we left off a few minutes ago at the end of verse 17. Remember the covenant ceremony wasn't finished. God passed through the pieces, but Abram hasn't walked through yet. So that's what we expect to see next, verse 18. Surely Abram is about to pass through, but an original reader would be stunned here To see the narrator say that even though Abram hasn't passed through the pieces, the covenant has already been cut. Look at it, verse 18. God passes through the pieces, and then on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. The covenant is complete, even though God is the only one who has passed through. You understand how significant that is? By God alone walking through and sealing the covenant without Abram walking through, he's doing something never before done in any covenant ceremony that we know of. Namely, he's saying, if either of us don't keep the terms of this covenant, let this be done to me, the greater party. See the parallel between the narrator's comments in verse 6 and verse 18? In both sections of this text, There's no room for thinking that we humans, even the most faithful of us like Abraham, can pull this off on our own. If the covenant is going to be kept, if that relationship between us and God is going to be maintained, it's going to have to be God who does it. It's not our job then to put the weight of perfect righteousness on ourselves. It's not our job to try to tip the scales to make the good in our life outweigh the bad as though that could maintain the covenant relationship. It can't. It's just our job to trust Him. It's our big question for today. Do we believe that God will make good on His promises? Do we believe it? As Michael Novak said, we all have both belief and doubt inside of us because we all have contradictory information to work with. Some here are waiting for jobs. Some here are waiting for healing. Some here are waiting for children. Many here are waiting for God to act In some way, which seems, at the face of it, to call into question whether he really intends to make good on what he has promised us. So maybe this morning you woke up ready to give up and name Eliezer your heir, so to speak. When will God come through? I can't tell you his timing. Not to give you a spoiler on the next passage, but after today's story, God is actually going to make Abram keep on waiting. Even longer. The very promise God gave in this chapter said that Abram's descendants would suffer four hundred years of affliction before taking possession of the land that God promised to Abram. As God's people, we find ourselves used getting used to waiting. So I can't tell you this morning how long you'll have to wait, but I can tell you that God will come through. He will. He did come through on his promises to Abram. Abram did have a son who would become a great nation. Abram's children are now as numerous as the stars in the sky. But there's one final layer in this passage that draws us especially to trust in God's promises. Remember those animals that were cut up in verse 10? The heifer, the goat, the ram, the turtle dove, the pigeon. About 500 years after this passage, the events of this passage, God institutes a sacrificial system for Abram's descendants. It's in the book of Leviticus. You can find it. Guess what animals he tells them to use for their sacrifices? These same ones. Twice a day, every day at the tabernacle, slaughter these animals. As if God's saying, every time one of these animals is killed, let it be a reminder of my promise to Abraham way back when that if either of us breaks the covenant, I'll be killed for it. Over time, the sacrificial system becomes more formalized. There's more ceremony involved in it. Once the temple's built in Jerusalem, it evolves to the point that twice a day, every day at the sound of a trumpet, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., one of these animals from this passage is killed and the blood splashed on the side of the altar. Twice daily, for 1,300 years this goes on, minus the years when the temple was destroyed. God, day after day, is broadcasting in blood to his people, don't forget my promise. If either of us breaks the covenant, I'll be killed for it. Doesn't matter if it's raining, if it's a Sabbath, if it's a holiday. He tells Moses, this needs to happen every day. In the meanwhile, how are God's people doing it, upholding their end of the covenant? Walk before me and be blameless? All this led up to one Friday. The city of Jerusalem is packed. It's a holiday after all, probably a special priest on duty. If you were to look out onto a hill just outside the city. See three men on crosses. They were nailed there hours before, and now it's almost three o'clock. Within the city, the man watching the time gives the signal. The shofar blows and echoes throughout Jerusalem. It's time for the afternoon sacrifice. And on that hill overlooking the city, the man in the middle raises his head to say, It is finished. And he dies at three o'clock, the time of the sacrifice. What was finished when Jesus said, It is finished? There's more than one answer to that question. But one true answer is that Jesus, God in the flesh, had made good on God's promise to Abraham 2,000 years earlier. The promise that had been echoed in every sacrifice since then, that God Himself would let His own blood be spilled. Before he let his covenant relationship with his people be lost, Jesus kept God's promise. Friends, God has made good on his promises at the greatest cost to himself. He made good on his promises to Abram. He'll make good on his promises to you. I pray that we've encountered this morning a patient God who isn't offended. When we cry out our complaints to him, he's tender toward us. Even though our crying contains a mixture of belief and unbelief, he's able to alleviate your suffering right now. And if he does, hallelujah. But if he doesn't, let's trust that he'll make good on his promises. Let's pray. God, our, our failure to uphold our end of this covenant is so blatant. It's almost, it would be laughable if it wasn't so tragic. You show such patient love to us and yet we reject you and walk our own way day after day. Yet we have the audacity to cry out to you asking to alleviate our suffering, to make good on your promises to us. <laughs> and instead of rejecting us or rebuking us for our brashness, you condescend to us, you're patient with us, and you tenderly come down to us to make good on your promises anyway. Thank you for your overwhelmingly great love for us.